Welcome to Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. I am David Arley Gates. And I'm Cal Beisner. The Cornwall Alliance is pleased to bring you the fifth and last segment of a discussion of the biblical perspective of environmental stewardship, subduing and ruling the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. This is a document that can be found on Cornwall Alliance's website, cornwallalliance.org. Click on the Landmark Documents tab and go to the Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship. So we want to start with number 26. We affirm that because a clean, safe, healthful, beautiful environment is a costly good, wealthy societies can better afford environmental protection and restoration than can poor societies. By contrast, we deny that economic development is per se a threat to environmental quality. An awful lot of the environmental movement just simply rejects economic development, thinks that we would all be better off and the world would be better off if we were to return to uh, what they tend to describe as a state of harmony with nature. But what history tells us is that harmony with nature is basically human suffering. Nature is not a particularly easy place to live, and we have to transform it in order for us to live well with it. But also, a lot of the environmental movement thinks that as societies get richer, they're inevitably going to make their environments dirtier, more polluted, more toxic. But environmental history tells us the exact opposite. Environmental history tells us that as societies get wealthier, they clean things up. This is referred to by environmental economists as the environmental Kuznets curve or the environmental transition. As a society goes from subsistence agriculture to early industrialization, pollution increases. But the benefits of the polluting activities far outweigh the risks that come from the pollution. We know that because during that very time, while the pollution is increasing, human health and human life expectancy rise. People live healthier, they live longer. That means the benefits outweigh the risks. But as societies reach various different levels of economic growth, economic development, they then are able not only to produce the better qualities of food and clothing and shelter and transportation and education and healthcare and all these other things, but they're also able to afford to reduce pollution. And so in early stages of development, yes, pollution increases, but then it peaks and after that it begins to decline. And so today, where do you find the most horrible pollution in the world, in wealthy countries or in poor countries? Anybody who has visited both knows the answer to that. The most polluted parts of the world are the poorest parts. The cleanest parts of the world are the wealthiest parts. We should welcome economic development, not reject it. We should see it as a step toward environmental protection and restoration. Yeah, the key words there for me are the phrase costly good. When a civilization is struggling to survive, it must focus on food, clothing, shelter, and security, and it will do anything to secure them. 
environmental stewardship at that point simply is non-existent. It's, it's why in sustenance living, you see considerable environmental degradation. As you know, Cal, having grown up in India, the Ganges River is used both as a source of potable water as well as for sewage removal. But it is not until those basic needs are met, food, clothing, shelter, and security, that the more costly goods, most notably here the environment, can be properly addressed. And since the environment and environmental stewardship is a costly good, society must be in a condition where environmental stewardship can be afforded and where the means and wherewithal to pursue it exist. But when a society is mired in abject poverty, it always suffers from environmental degradation. Number 27, we affirm that private ownership of land and other resources is the best institutional economic system for environmental protection because it harnesses the God-given human incentives to overcome something called the tragedy of the commons. By contrast, we deny that collective economic systems are equally good at protecting or improving natural environments. We've talked about in my classes about the tragedy of the commons. People take care of what they have for themselves. They don't take care of what is jointly owned by everyone. You said earlier, Cal, that people will not tolerate graffiti in their bathroom at home, but yet it is frequently seen in public restrooms. So common goods such as land are not treated with the same respect as our private goods. People tend to care more for what is theirs and less about what is commonly held. The story of the Boston Commons is classic in that the commons was an area of common ground for livestock grazing within the city. But the desire to use as much of it as one could led to considerable overgrazing of the Boston Commons with more overgrazing than anyone would permit on their own privately owned land. Yeah. And this tragedy of the commons phrase goes back to the period in much of human civilization when there would be a common grazing land for people. People would own their own livestock, but the grazing land would be held in common. Nobody had private property in it. What would happen then was that each individual livestock owner's incentive would be to get his livestock out there so that they could eat as much as possible of the pasture as quickly as possible, because what their livestock didn't eat, other livestock would. And so then you have overconsumption of that grazing land. If instead land itself belongs to the livestock owner, then that livestock owner has an incentive to improve the land's fertility and to carefully allocate how the silage that is grown on that land gets used. So in the tragedy of the commons, the resources are overconsumed and they are depleted rapidly. In private ownership, the resources are carefully stewarded and that is what leads to sustainability, to the restoration as things are consumed. This tells us that private property is essential to good environmental stewardship. And it follows from that, that socialism doesn't work well. As I've mentioned in one of our earlier programs, I've addressed this issue in a small booklet that I wrote called, Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? In which I compare the records 
of socialist countries with capitalist countries in terms of environmental stewardship. And the history tells us very, very clearly the greatest environmental disasters have all taken place in socialist and mixed economy places, highly centralized economies, whereas more capitalistic private property economies tend to do much, much better at taking care of the natural environment. Point number 28 in this biblical perspective of environmental stewardship builds off of that. It says, we affirm that local constitutionally limited responsive governments by the consent of the governed are better suited to environmental stewardship than central unlimited governments without regard to the consent of the governed. And we deny that socialism, fascism, communism, and other forms of collectivist, expansionist government offer better solutions to environmental risks than limited, free, constitutional governments with market economies. Actually, Cal, you should comment on that because that's that's straight out of your book. <laughs> yeah. What we find historically is that because private property gives people an incentive to take care of what belongs to them, the more you shift the ownership or the control over property from private individuals to collectives, to elected representatives, for instance, or to the state as a whole, the more you shift that way, the less care, the less wisdom is going to be brought to the task of environmental stewardship. This has been shown, as I said a bit ago, in the history of socialist countries versus the history of more capitalist countries. If you look, for example, at what happened with the Aral Sea in the former Soviet Union, the Soviet government determined that they were going to increase agricultural yields in one area by reversing the flow of a river that had fed into the Aral Sea. The result was, over a period of years, to reduce the water content of the Aral Sea by something in the neighborhood of about 80%, and to reduce the surface area by around about 75%. That also caused the saltiness to soar, and the result was that it devastated the surrounding land salty dust storms from that area, poisoned lands hundreds of miles downwind from there. Nothing remotely comparable to that has ever happened in a free, democratic, constitutional, private enterprise society. We just find from history that that is how it works. We don't want to ignore the lessons of history. As the Harvard philosopher George Santayana put it, those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it. So let me ask you a question, Cal. I've come across some people that have been pushing something called Christian communism, and they argue it's based on the concept of koinonia, if I get that right, which means common or shared life in Greek. Mm -hmm. Their argument is that based upon Acts 4.34, the early church in Jerusalem, we see a quote that says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but shared everything in common. So what is your take on Christian communism or Christian socialism as espoused by some of these people? 
Yeah, I've I've addressed that very argument in my book, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. People take a passage that is all about illustrating the love that people show to each other, and they turn it into a passage illustrating the notion of justice. But love and justice are very different things. Justice is the minimum requirement of what we owe to each other. So justice is rendering what is due. Love is something far beyond that. Love says, I'm going to give wonderful benefits where they aren't deserved at all. In Acts 4, and also in Acts 2, in the description of koinonia, the fellowship, the community of the saints there, we are being told what these Christians did for each other because they loved each other, not because they thought it was a matter of justice. And we see some of the indications of that if we look carefully at the language. It does say that nobody considered what he had to be his own, but that they had all things in common. It doesn't say everybody considered that whatever belonged to somebody else belonged to himself also. They weren't taking from each other. They were giving to each other. And there's a bit of technical Greek here. The verb that says that they were selling then giving is in what's called the imperfect tense. That describes an activity that began in the past and that goes on over and over again. So these Christians, when they saw a need, they would sell some of their property and they would give in order for that need to be met. When they saw another need, they might sell some more property and give. If they saw another need, they might sell some more property and give. The selling was voluntary. The giving was voluntary. The selling was not all at once, and suddenly they had no more property left. Instead, we learn from later on in the book of Acts that the disciples were often helped along by some wealthy people, particularly some wealthy widows in the Christian fellowship there. Those widows remained wealthy, but because of their wealth, they were able to help in that manner. In Acts chapter 5, you have the encounter of Ananias and Sapphira with the apostle Peter. They've sold a field, and they bring some money to the apostles. Ananias says to the apostles, here's my gift from the sale of my land. And Peter says, is this the entire price from when you sold it? And Ananias says, yes. Now, that was a lie. Peter responds, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. He also says, while that field was yours, wasn't it under your control? And when you had sold it, didn't the money belong to you? You could do with it as you pleased? You've lied. Ananias's problem was not that he kept back part of the price. It was that he lied about it. And Peter is making it very clear that the selling and the giving were voluntary. That and a number of different passages some people will use to try to argue that the Bible is communistic. I've treated all of those different passages, both in my book, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, and in my much longer book, 
Prosperity and Poverty, the Compassionate Use of Resources in the World of Scarcity. These books are both available through the online store at cornwallalliance.org. Thank you. Number 29, we affirm that truth-telling is a moral obligation and that sound environmental stewardship depends on it. By contrast, we deny that intentional exaggeration as practiced by many environmental advocacy organizations or the minimization as practiced by many industries of environmental risks or of the effectiveness of various means of addressing them is righteous. This has always bothered me because I remember a long quote by Stephen Schneider, a famous climatologist. Uh, He was quoted as saying, On the one hand, as scientists, we are ethically bound to the scientific method, in effect promising to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but, which means that we must include all the doubts, the caveats, the if, ands, and buts. On the other hand, we are not just scientists, but human beings as well. And like most people, we'd like to see the world a better place, which in this context translates into our working to reduce the risk of potentially disastrous climate change. To do that, we need to get some broad-based support to capture the public's imagination. That, of course, entails getting loads of media coverage. So we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we might have. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. I hope that means being both. Well, my argument is that as a scientist, and of course as a Christian, we must first and foremost be honest. I hope that being honest means being effective, but being honest comes first and must always come first. If I have to lie to you to get you to do something, then maybe I should rethink what I really want you to do and the motivations behind it. So I think this is what number 29 here is really all about. Many different environmental advocacy organizations have just a dreadful track record of exaggerating or outright falsifying their claims about environmental problems. This is why one of my favorite Bible verses, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast what is good, really has to be one of the things that we as Christians are always quick to do. We must not just be easily misled to embracing every claim of catastrophe that ever comes down the pike. There are real problems out there, but most of them are not the sort of thing that is going to be an existential threat. That just is not the case. We conclude with number 30 which is we affirm that godly dominion is a responsibility for everyone at all times. And we deny that the expectation of divine judgment in whatever eschatological framework negates the need for biblical earth stewardship. Some environmentalists will say that all Christians who are critical of the environmental movement just basically have a devil-may-care attitude about earth stewardship. And they'll say, you Christians think it's all going to burn up in the end anyway, so therefore you don't care about it. Okay, there may be a few Christians who have that attitude about it, who just say taking good care of the earth is like polishing brass on the Titanic on a sinking ship. 
But that certainly is not the attitude of the vast majority of Christians. It certainly is not what we are taught by the Bible. We are taught in what I consider to be the key text for earth stewardship, Genesis 1.28, that we are supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And taken in its context, that verse tells us that our dominion should reflect God's dominion because we are made in God's image. God's dominion is one that is characterized by truth, by creativity, by productivity, by bringing about great life and abundant varieties of life and telling all of those varieties of life to be fruitful and multiply themselves. So, our dominion should be one in which we enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and to the benefit of our neighbors. Whatever your end-time views, your eschatology, whether you think that God is going to just totally annihilate the entire universe and create a new one, or whether you think that the present earth will endure, but God will renew it in a variety of different ways, no matter what your end-time thinking is, your responsibility to be a good steward of the earth is biblically sound, and it cannot be denied. So, godly dominion is a responsibility for everyone all the time, and we can't allow our expectation of divine judgment in the end to cause us to ignore that responsibility for biblical earth stewardship. This has been Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Thanks very much for joining us, and I would encourage you to go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the Landmark Documents tab, and go to the Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship, Subduing and Ruling the Earth to the Glory of God and the Benefit of Our Neighbors, where you can study this document that David and I have been discussing for the last five episodes and can look up the various Bible passages that are involved. This would make a really excellent tool for use in a Sunday school class or homeschooling, a small group meeting, and things of that sort. And last, I'd like to just remind you the Cornwall Alliance is a, a nonprofit charitable organization, and we depend on support from listeners like you. So I would ask you to consider making a donation. You can do that at cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, God bless. <music> <laughs>